blood service 25 swimmers out of 25 something like 20 of them did exactly the same thing which is the biggest problem biggest mistake you can make and that's what i call the death move now because once you do it you're dead in the water you're not going anyplace watched him swim and something dawned on me that i never dawned on me before i don't know why i caught it that day but all of a sudden i saw that almost all were doing exactly the same thing which is something i never taught to anybody Welcome to the Effortless Swimming Podcast, the show that helps swimmers and triathletes love the water, become a better swimmer, and live a better life. Here's your host, Brenton Ford. Hello and welcome to today's episode of the Effortless Swimming Podcast. My guest today is none other than triathlon coach, author, and legend of the sport, Joe Friel. He featured on an episode a couple of months ago where he talked about his PDLC method to developing technique. And this was one of our most listened to episodes. So I wanted to get Joe back to talk about more about swimming and open water and triathlon, but also to talk a little bit about what he's been studying over the last couple of years. He's just released the latest edition of his triathlon training Bible. And that came out less than a month ago, but it was originally written in 1997. And it's been around the whole time because the information is still relevant, but he's updated it for the time. So we're going to talk a bit about the changes and adjustments that he's made to that book. Plus, we're going to talk about the one thing that he's seen triathletes do in the open water when it comes to changing their stroke from the pool to the open water and what he teaches his athletes. We also talk about what it takes to actually make changes stick and how patients can be one of the cornerstones of becoming a better triathlete and swimmer. Plus, we talk about what you can do in training to become a better open water swimmer as well. If you've only got access to the pool, what can you do in the pool to make yourself a better open water swimmer? So we talk about that and more on today's episode. Now, the audio cuts in and out at times. So if the audio is a little bit, a little bit unclear, it comes back within 10 seconds or so. So apologies for that. I think the internet was a little bit slow on Joe's side, but it does come back pretty quick. And I know you're going to enjoy this episode. I really enjoyed talking to Joe. He's a wealth of knowledge and I've learned a lot from listening to him and seeing what he teaches and how he approaches his coaching. So I'm sure you're going to get a lot out of today's episode. Let's get stuck into it. Here's the episode with triathlon legend, Joe Freel. My guest today is a returning guest, someone who we had on quite recently. It is Joe Frill. Joe, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Brent. Glad to be here. Thank you for asking me. I was talking to you before the podcast saying that your the episode that you're on before was our second most listened to episode because I think the PDLC method that we talked about on that podcast really resonated with people. We've got a lot of triathletes and open water swimmers who listen and they I think they really resonated with that. And obviously your experience and background in the sport has it, you got a vast, vast depth of knowledge. So I think it was it was really popular among our listeners. So thank you for being on the podcast previously. And if you haven't listened to that, go back to that episode and listen because I think there were some really good technique tips amongst the other things that we talked about. I want to talk about some slightly different things on on today's episode because you've just recently updated a book that you wrote in originally in 1996 or 1997. You said it's no, on it's 1997. Yeah, that's it on its fifth edition. I just want to jump into some of the the updates that you've made with that with that book. So, what is it that you've been studying the last couple of years that you've updated for this edition? Oh, I suppose the biggest change that's made in this book was to really open up more about ways to establish intensity zones 
I left swimming the same. I've always felt I had that that pretty well nailed down, but I was never really quite confident that I really had exactly what I wanted for run and bike, for example, the other two sports in triathlon. And so I uh, gave that a lot of thought and tried to make it more personalized so the athlete can pick a system they want to use, like max heart rate or functional threshold heart rate or or, or these same or power sort of things. So these, this is kind of the way I tried to do it was a little bit more allowing the athletes to choose what they want to do rather than telling them there's only one way to do this. Because quite honestly, the most variables, the most poorly designed of coaching athletes isn't as bad as far the most do. And it's not you know, 100% right for everybody all the time. I wouldn't swear now that what I've just now written this book is going to be right for everybody, but it's a good starting place for people who want to figure it out for themselves. They can have at least some place to, to begin the, the quest for what should my zones be when I'm working out. And what would factor into someone's decision on which method that they choose? I'll be back up and give you an example. When I first came out with the zone system I used, I never got any complaints at all about swimming. Matter of fact, which is interesting, that one, that, that one, that's just been since the, like you mentioned, the late 90s sometime when I wrote that, came up with that, that system. That has never had anybody question it or ask about why, but running and cycling intensity zones, especially heart rate, have had a lot of, I wouldn't call it pushback, but a lot of questions on, on why. And one of the most common responses I got, was common comments I got from people was in heart rate. And it just seemed like the upper end of zone one was too hard. I heard that, I can't tell you how many times, but I, I heard it many, many times from athletes. It seemed like the upper end of zone one was just a little bit too hard. And so when they would say that to me, I would always go back with, well, if you think that's the case and change your zone. We're not all built exactly the same way. So if it doesn't fit you in that way, Try something different. Lower it. See what happens. I don't know if anybody ever did because they never get back to me and say, yeah, I figured it out. They never say that, but they at least I tried to get them to do what they should do is to figure out a zone that works for them, a zone system that works for them. So that was the most the most common complaint I got. So I, what I tried to do with the more recent, the most recent book which just came out is to give the, 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 the athletes some options on how to set their zones. For, for example, they could use max heart rate. And then they could use percentages of max heart rate to come up with their zones. Or they could use functional threshold heart rate, which is involved in doing a test, for example, in, in cycling or running. A 20-minute test in which you find your, your average heart rate. And there's a mathematics which won't go into right now, but that that's, that's another way of doing it that I included in the book. And I'm not saying that those are perfect either, because this is, this is not perfection. This is simply trying to get as close as we can to what the athlete should be doing. And there are other ways too that I mentioned in the book, like using lactate analysis to determine your zones. That's one that's becoming quite popular right now, especially because of the Norwegian churning methods that have been going around now for a couple of years. There's a lot of people who are using using lactate threshold as, as a way of determining this. That's another option I mentioned in the book. You can use lactate to determine this. What I found, though, is that most people don't want to get involved in puncturing their finger frequently throughout the day to find out what their zones are. So most people don't do it. 
they may have one test done and then they kind of accept that as being the gospel, but it probably needs to be rethought many, many times going forward because it's, it's unlikely that it'll stay exactly the same over time. And there even there's obviously room for error or two in doing a test like that. So I tried to make it available to the athlete to find different ways of doing this. And I'll find out when people start writing me emails and telling me, hey, it doesn't work because of this, that, or the other thing. <laughs> they, they're never afraid to tell me why. <laughs> <laughs> it's Part of it is like this. It's kind of like swimming technique. There's so many different ways you can get from one end of the pool to the other. And for each person, it's going to be it's going to be different. You think of like a straight arm technique over the water, more bent elbow recovery. It's like there's no right or wrong. It just depends on maybe the event you're training for. It depends on what suits you best. So sometimes people get caught up in all the different things and then they end up not making a decision and then they're just kind of in no man's land. So I, I think half the battle is just just pick one, go with it, and that's going to get you probably 90, 95% of the way there on your journey to becoming a better triathlete or a better swimmer like just just pick something go for it start the training and and you're going to be well on your way as opposed to you know de debating it for the next six months and not doing not doing anything i mentioned in the book that turning zones are not are not magic you know if you you can go over if you go over your turning zone by one or two beats per minute for example let's talk about heart rate is that a problem probably not if you go eight to ten beats over yeah it's, it's Probably a problem then, but you know it's this is this is something that we're doing. It's, it's clear cut. It's, it's got a lot of room for variation, a lot of room for individuality. So the athlete needs to kind of be aware of what they're experiencing when they're using a heart rate monitor, a power meter, or whatever it may be. Mm. And another thing that you cover in the book is heart rate variability. Can you share a practical example of how an athlete would use HRV in their daily training decisions. Yeah, I do. This is something, this has been around for a long time, actually, but it's only, I, I suppose, popular is the right word in, in, in athletics, is how do I know when to rest and how do I know when I'm ready to start turning again? The easy answer to that question, which is what I've always used in the past, is that when it feels like it's time, do it. If it feels like it's time to rest, rest. It feels like it's time to start again, start again. But the problem athletes run into is they're so highly motivated that they kind of second guess themselves. Uh, athletes seldom rest, will seldom say to themselves, I think I need to rest. That is extremely rare for an athlete to say that to themselves. Same thing with, I think, I think I should rest longer. That's one thing an athlete will almost never say to themselves. I, I need to start right away and get out it. I'm, I'm losing too much fitness here. I need to get back to training again. And so we, we athletes tend to lose perspective on the importance of rest and recovery in performance. And that's critical to success in, in, in sport. And yet we don't give it nearly enough attention as, as athletes. Coaches do. Coaches give, seem to give it a lot more thought, a lot more determination. So in the first book, I came up with a method I would help the athlete try to figure out what, when, when to take a rest break. Ask questions. Let's let's do. Let's measure your heart rate first thing in the morning and see what it's telling us. How does that heart rate compare with your normal range of resting heart rates? Is it high, for example? If it's high, that's a marker that says maybe you should take a rest day. Then there's markers such as how'd you sleep last night? Well, I didn't sleep very well. I lost. I was up. I was awake for a couple of hours. 
hey, maybe that's another marker that you should take from recovery time. If we start looking at start put together a list of markers like that, the idea being if the athlete could ask themselves these questions early in the morning, take measurements like HRV, like heart rate, like how they slept, their appetite, how they feel, all kinds of things. And from that, draw a conclusion about if they should take a break from training, if it's time to do that, or if they're on the other end of this, if they've been re- recovering for a few days and now it's time to start back, am I ready to start again? So that's what I was doing. And HRV kind of simplifies a lot of that. I wouldn't say it's perfect. I find with myself that there are times when it doesn't blend in, doesn't match what I'm feeling and what I discovered that day when I work out. But I think it's a really good way of, of forcing you to think about it. You know, if you get that marker up on HRV that says, train easy today, don't go hard or whatever it may be, but based on the app you're using, take it easy. You know, that forces you to say to yourself, do I need to really take it easy? And and hopefully you're going to say to yourself, well, I need to think about that a little bit here. Let's think about a few other things that have to do with my recovery where I am right now. Mm-hmm. So that that's what HRV is all about, I think. It's more, I'd rather see you use that for that purpose than to make hardcore decisions just based on HRV. Mm-hmm. Good tool, but not perfect. Mm-hmm. Excellent. So tech, the technology is there. The, the data is there, but you've also just got to be aware of how you how you're feeling. Ask those other questions and not just rely on the on the tech side of things, right? Right. That's exactly. Now I want to shift gears a little bit here. What's one swimming myth that you've encountered that you'd like to debunk once and for all? What's something you hear regularly? If you can, if you can only, oh gosh, if you can so stop nice. at one, yeah, <laughs> there's probably a few, right? <laughs> I tell you, the one that most that screws up most triathletes. This was one that I, I kind of suspected back in the early days of triathlon, but in, I forgot what year it was. Put it on a camp, and I forgot the, the it was I forgot where it was now. But at that at that camp, we used the the local pool, which is an excellent pool, and they happened to have an underwater observatory where coaches could go or anybody could go down and observe in, in the in the pool. In the pool above, which was a, it wasn't actually the open water of the pool itself. This was just a chamber within the, within the pool. So you can see with a, with a, what do you call it? A, a stream of water coming at the swimmer. Mm. What's the word for that? I forgot. Like the, en- the endless pool. You may know about the swim spa. Yeah. Like, like an endless pool sort of thing. Yeah. And so the idea was you could have an athlete swim in that, in that chamber, I call it, and you could observe what they were doing. And I had a group of campers, they're triathletes. I, I don't know how I had, how many, 25 to 30 athletes, something like that. So I went down in the like first and second days. I watched every athlete swim. At, let's say it was 25 swimmers. Out of 25, something like 20 of them did exactly the same thing, which is the biggest problem, biggest mistake you can make. And that's what I call the death move now, because once you do it, you're dead in the water. You're not going anyplace. And that's to reach out in front of you with your elbow below your hand. As soon as you get your elbow below your hand, there's nothing you can absolutely do other than push straight down the water, which doesn't propel you forward whatsoever. And you don't get a catch, what we typically call a catch, until your hand's about under your belly someplace. Mm. You wind up with a catch, which is about this long, as a catch, instead of a catch, which is as long as your arm is. That's the biggest mistake I see with triathletes. And so that's the one mm. I had to focus on the most. And that was the start of this whole process I use in coaching athletes, which I have referred to as PDLC. Because mm. that was one of the things I had to 
really drill into athletes was you can't you cannot do that. Once you do that, you're, you're just not going to go forward. You're, you're just going to be still. You're going to slow down the water until you finally get a catch. It'd be kind of like running with the, with the stride that's about you know about that long. And that's that's same idea. Mm. You wouldn't go anyplace. You'd just be going really slow forward. But it'd be this tiny little step you're taking. And the same thing in swimming. If you get a short stroke, you're not going forward. You're just simply standing still until your hand is finally put to the place where you can catch. So I, you get me started here because that's one of my favorite <laughs> topics to talk about. That. It's, yeah, the catch. <laughs> it's, uh, we had a guy, Lee Nugent. He's a, a legendary Aussie swim coach and done a lot of work with some of the top swimmers in Australia. And one of the things he mentioned on the podcast was that it's, if your hand is higher than your elbow, you just cannot propel yourself forwards. You've got no ability to catch. So, yeah, when you're reaching forwards, that hand has got to get either to the same depth at the beginning of your elbow, but then you've eventually just got to get it down. And what, a really common thing that I see with filming is that when you film someone from above, if they are crossing the sense line when they're extending, it's fairly common to see that elbow drop because I think it's a more comfortable position for the shoulder to be in when they're out in front and crossed over. So the elbow drops a bit there. And sometimes we just have to start with direction. You know, we call it swimming on train tracks just in that reach phase, but got to get that right first for a lot of people. And then it's much easier to set the the catch. And I had a guy on Sunday just gone at a clinic who he, we just had to focus on the direction, get him straight. And then pretty quickly, his catch began to improve because he had a good sense of the movement, but he was just crossing over and making it really hard for himself. So it's, yeah, such a, such a big one. And you, you, when you look at the underwater footage from the side, if someone is either like going in really deep as well, they're not extending out and you see their catch is, you know, might be 15 centimeters of water that they're sort of holding there. It's like, you could triple that. You could quadruple that if you just get the right length and everything. So there's, there's so many little things that people can improve. And I was talking about this before, yeah, we're talking about this before we started the podcast. I think that's why I've got a, I've got a job is that swimming is a really hard thing to do. And uh, there's no, there's no end in sight to, to improvement. You can always improve with these little one percenters and that's what makes it fun. That's what I, I love about coaching. It's solving a puzzle. And to me, that's a, a really enjoyable part of, of what I do. Um, is there, can, can you share a moment or, or an experience in your career that's really tested your resolve or your beliefs about swimming training? Before we dive into the rest of today's podcast episode, this episode is proudly brought to you by Form Smart Swim Goggles. They've been a longtime sponsor of the podcast and they are my go-to goggles when it comes to tracking my training sessions and being able to see what's happening in real time through the goggles. And we know swimming is a highly technical sport, but without the guidance of a coach on deck, identifying and addressing technique flaws can be a challenge. They've recently added a new feature to the goggles, Head Coach, and this addresses that problem head on. It gives swimmers improved access to their technique awareness, focus skill development, and in-app education and analysis. Head Coach provides real-time visual coaching via the Form Smart Swim Goggles augmented reality display. During and after a swim, Head Coach provides swimmers with technique feedback using two types of metrics, form score and head coach skills. Form score is a measurement of overall swim efficiency ranging from zero to 100, defined by your pace and your stroke length. Head Coach skills encompasses five key areas that will help you identify where to focus on improving with your efficiency. Head roll, head pitch, set pacing, interval pacing, and breathing time to neutral. 
And after completing a session, you can check back in on the form app to track your progress. And Head Coach provides swimmers from beginner to expert with an unprecedented level of data-driven guidance and understanding, enabling you to boost your performance and your speed. Get your pair of Form Smart Swim Goggles today. Click the link in our podcast description or use the code EFFORTLESS on checkout to get 15% off your Form Smart Swim Goggles. Oh, yeah. Yeah, this goes back to the, to the 90s. And uh, I, I like to go to races. When I, was, when I wasn't racing, I would probably go watch races just to see what people were doing, especially I wanted to see what the pros were doing, the, the best in, in the sport. I wanted to see what they were doing, for example, in the swim. So one year, the, uh, there was an Ironman uh, in Phoenix, which is, wasn't too far away from where I lived at the time. It was only about a 30-minute drive from where I lived. And the race was in a canal. Swim, swim was in a canal. So uh, you could walk along the edge of the canal and you could, be, you could stay right with the swimmers while they were swimming. And so I was, the race started and I watched the pros take off. And so I'm, I'm walking around along the, the canal, watched them swim, and something dawned on me that I'd never dawned on me before. I don't know why I caught it that day, but all of a sudden I saw that almost all were doing exactly the same thing, which is something I never taught to anybody. Which is they had their hand way above their way above the water as they were reaching forward, as opposed to putting the hand in the water somewhat close to their heads. They're putting their fingers weren't entering the water until their arm was fully extended. And so that kind of struck me. And so I went back and started toying around with it myself to see what was going on there. And I began to realize that what they were doing, what what you really should be doing in open water swimming, which is to reach over the water. Can because the water is not smooth, it can be very very rough, and so if you if you get your hand up high, that puts you in a position where you can grab more water and therefore have as what we talked about before a catch, because you grab more water by doing this. Also, get your hand in the right position. You get your your fingers below your elbow when you do that. When you reach out with your arm fully extended above the water, and it's when I, in fact one of the things I teach athletes to do is one of the drills I have them do when we're learning this technique. So I call it just a splash drill. So what they do is they, they reach out as far as they can as they're swimming freestyle, they reach out as far as they can in the front and splash their hand down as hard as they can on the water so they can really feel the, the power of their hand hitting the water. And I want that to be as far away from their body as they can so they can even pull their head up if they want you to see where it is. So when they come into the water, their hand is like that real hard. And so I, I chastise them. They don't make it hard enough. They make it too pretty. They make it too smooth. Let's really reach out and really smack that water so we know where your hand is at all times. I want to hear the water splashing. And so I, I keep taking them through this over and over and over and over. And finally, they get the idea that they've got to really reach out there when they're making this move. And, and so that was the first one. The first things I ever learned was from watching pro triathletes. And it caused me to think about what I was teaching in to my triathletes. Mm. So, and there's been many and many other events like that in my life also, but that was, that was one of the, one of the first I recall, which is really important. And why do you think that the, the best swimmers, the, the pro triathletes, why do you think they make that change compared to in the pool? Yeah. Well, for one thing, they don't have rough water. The water is, is you know, Obviously, in a pool, the water is not nearly as, as rough as it's going to be if you're swimming open the water, like in the ocean, especially. That, that canal is pretty calm. 
So that wasn't going to be an issue there, but they were all still doing it anyway. They were all still reaching above their heads with a straight elbow, basically almost a straight elbow, and then reaching far out before they made contact with the water with their hand. And they all do that, by the way, still today. When I watch the pro triathlon start, I always watch for that and immediately you see it. In fact, if you look at pictures of the start of a pro race, you'll see the hands up high in the air. You won't see elbows high in the air. You'll see hands high in the air. Because they learn to do that in open water. If you're swimming in the ocean and there's, there's waves or, you know, you know, really deep waves, you know, that that's the sort of thing that's going to really mess you up if you're trying to reach into it. If you get your hand above it, you don't have the water pushing back against you. Your hand's in the air. The air is not nearly as dense as the water is. So you can reach over that wave and grab the water and pull yourself forward, which is what we're trying to do. Mm. And so I think that's the reason why pro triathletes got into doing if it wasn't for the open water swimming i don't think it would be nearly as popular as it is if it was mm. all pools i mean we would see nearly as many people doing that mm. and uh, i think as well like that's because when i look at most swimmers i think of myself as well doing this when i go from the pool to the open water my stroke rate comes up quite a bit especially if i've got a wetsuit on and i think part of that is you're sitting higher so you can kind of get your stroke rate up higher as well but it's that reach over the water where you kind of throw the hand out there you get this you get this momentum over the top and then there's obviously less glide so you're going to start the catch sooner and you can get the stroke rate up a bit a bit quicker that way i do find that people going from the pool to the open water they find that their times do suffer they they do find that open water swimming a bit of a challenge so i really like that tip is reach reach out further throw that hand forwards and then get a get a bigger catch get a bigger paddle and and play around with that. I one of the I kind of got these three three words that I use with people when I'm teach teaching them to swim open water. It's it's higher, so sort of higher with the hand over the top, faster, and sometimes wider because people are trying to have this hand close to the body. So yep. higher, faster, wider. And it's interesting to hear you talk about what you noticed there because yeah, that was my interpretation of it when I started teaching open water or coaching open water swimming. It was higher, wider, faster with the hand over the top so uh, yeah i like i like that it's nice to see it kind of come together there i think you're right well I, i've seen athletes do also which is one of the things i had to try to correct is exactly what she mentioned which is to bring the hand up in this position before they put it in the water so it's very close to the head and that i've always found that to be an ineffective way of of getting a catch so and that's where i started going this this idea of getting a little bit higher in the water over the water to reach out to grab the water as opposed to trying to do it next to your head. But I still see coaches teaching that. It blows me away. I'll, I'll see somebody on YouTube or something uh, on how to coach wind water swimming, and they're teaching this movement of getting your elbow really high with your hand next to your head and then reach out under the water like you're putting your hand into a sleeve or reaching into the mailbox or something they typically call it. And I find that to be a tremendous waste of energy to do it that way. And you wind up in the very poor position also to grab the water, as we've been talking about here. And in terms of your sort of like coaching career, has there been a specific instance where you've found that you've had to like go against what that you sort of mentioned, one, but go against what other people are, are teaching or just like you, you had something in mind where you thought, no, I think this this is like this is how it needs to be done. I'm going to to teach your coach this way, even though there was other other people coaching in a different way. Yeah, there's it's an endless list of things. <laughs> I honestly don't know where to begin. I just stick with swimming. 
when I came up, you know, when I started deciding how, how I was going to swim, teach, train coaches, train the, the swimmers for triathlon, one of the things I decided was that most athletes, most triathletes don't need to be doing intervals in the pool. It's really a waste of time for them to do that. They mostly just create a lot of bubbles around themselves and don't go anyplace. It's, they're still slow. And so I started working with athletes to the idea that until they got to a fairly decent time in the pool, all we were going to work on was technique. Mm. We're just going to work on, as, as I think I did in your last, your last podcast, I talked about PDLC. We're just going to work on those four things, which if there's probably one or two of these things that the athlete's really weak on, we're going to focus on that. And that's all we're going to work on. In fact, I had them do exactly the same workouts all the time. I'm sure they, people get really tired of it, but that's part of the thing of trying to become good at something is to, is to repeat it until you become so, so, so integrated to your, your, who you are as a swimmer that you don't have to think about it anymore. It just is what you do. And so I would have them from a, a 24 and stay there for as long as they want. Uh, don't time it. Don't say, oh, I got to go again in 10 seconds. No, no. Stay there until you feel like you're ready to go again. In the meantime, take your mind off of swimming and think about something else. I told them to think about what they're going to do for supper tonight or what they're doing at the job today or somebody in the lane next to them and how they look swimming or whatever you want to think about. But for quite a long time, several seconds, 20, 30, 40 seconds, think about something else. Then begin to bring your mind back to the stroke again, the thing you're working on. Begin to focus your memory on that and swim another 25 moderately fast, working on just that one thing. Mm. Let's, let's do that until it becomes a habit. Then we'll go to something else and work on it. Athletes are all the same. They all want to go to immediately to the, the end. If I tell athletes in running, the hardest workouts you could do would be to do five times three minutes with 90-second recoveries, all done at your aerobic capacity pace. If I tell an athlete that, that's what they'll do tomorrow. They will go out and do five times, nine, five times three minutes and so forth. Because, but the point is you don't start out by doing the most difficult thing. You start out by doing the most easy thing. You start out by running 30 seconds at aerobic capacity with a minute and a half recovery. Mm. And over the course of several weeks, you build up to doing this five times three minutes. But that five times three minutes be very good when you finally do it. But if you start out doing it, it's never going to improve. It's going to be a piece of crap. It's always going to be worthless, a waste of your time. Mm. It's the same thing in the pool. If all you do is do intervals all day, the entire workout, and you get done and you're, you're breathless and you think that was good, I would say, for the most part, most triathletes, most age group triathletes did not accomplish anything in the pool. All they did was made themselves tired. They didn't get any better. They're not going to swim any faster because of this workout today. So let's get to what's holding you back. What's holding you back is your technique. You're not being held back by aerobic capacity, your stamina, your economy. Well, your economy, yes, that's because that's that's a skill. You're not being held back by these physiological things you typically think. If you're being held back just because you don't have good technique. If I'm working with a golfer, I don't have the golfer go out and play 18 holes every day and try to see if they can shoot below par. What I have the golfer do is go to the driving range and work on hitting a ball. 
Let's see if you can hit the ball squarely in the middle of the club face with your driver. That's a good starting place. If we can get to that point, then we can build on that. And there's other things we're going to do along the line. So I just try to get the, the ball to the middle of your club face. There's all kinds of things we can do to improve your, 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 your swing. Mm. It's the same thing with swimming. It's, it's a very, very technical sport. It's not the sort of thing you can do just off the, off the top of your head. Even if you've, even if you've done it a thousand times, you may never get figured it out. I know lots of golfers who've never figured out how to golf, swing a golf club, but they've been doing it for 20 years. They haven't figured it out yet hmm. because they've never really gotten down to what is, what is the basic element of the movement I have to make? What is that movement? Hmm. And then practice that movement. They want to go right to the end and do five times, three minutes aerobic capacity. Everybody's the same until you get out of that mindset, until you get to the idea that I am going to work on the most basic thing that helps me become a faster swimmer or a golfer. I'm going to do that one thing until I get it right. And then yeah. I'll go to the next thing. Nobody wants to do that, but that's what a coach should make you do. Yeah. It's, uh, I think becoming a good swimmer is, is just repeatedly doing a list of boring things. It's like, it's, <laughs> And it's, it's very simple, but it's not easy, but it's just, yeah, day in, day out, repeating these things and uh, allowing it to become habit. And like, if I think, if I think back to all the swimmers that I've coached and when I see them later on, the ones that have improved, they're the ones that have had the patience. They're just like, oh, I'm just going to, I'm not too concerned with my times today. I am just, I'm, I'm going to focus on my stroke. I'll, I'll do these sets well, but the times and so on, I'm not, I'm not too concerned because I know that six months, 12 months, two years down the track that this is all going to to pay off. And I, I spoke about this concept that I heard from Simon Sinek. I spoke about this a, a few weeks ago on the podcast where he's got finite games and infinite games. And finite games is like, all right, you're training for a, a particular race because there's winners and losers and there's a certain date that it, it happens. But with infinite games, it's like marriage. You don't win at marriage. You know, it's like the aim is to stay married. So if you look at swimming as an infinite game where it's like there's no end, there's no end in sight, it's just something that I, I want to continue to do and you've got that approach of just I want to be the best swimmer that I can but there's no end in sight, I think that's a really healthy way to, to approach it where you're not looking to rush things, you're just happy to be there and just keep working at it. And I've found myself leaning a lot more towards that now. So, I mean, I'm in my mid-30s but compared to when I was 18, 19, 20, I was – very competitive and cared a lot about my results. These days, not so much. I just want to be able to swim until I until I die. And I just want to keep improving as best as I can. So I see it more as that infinite game now. Um, not to say you shouldn't have those finite games where you're training for a race and you want to do well. You've got to have that, obviously, especially if you're putting in all this time. But I think it's the approach that really can make the difference there. That's a very good point. I like that. Uh, finite and infinite. I'll, I'll keep that in mind because it kind of helps to explain this whole thing. But you're right. Patience is the key, especially in endurance sports. If you if you're not patient, if you don't really, if you're unwilling to work at it until you get it figured out and do it the right way, then you're really just wasting your time. You're, you're just going out there and, and splashing a lot of water around and getting out of breath and getting out of the pool, thinking you accomplished something. But to, you know, tomorrow you're going to be just as slow as you were the day before, and six months from now you'll be just as slow as you were before. So you've got to think this is a long range and it's something I'm going to work on for a long time. And in order to do that, I need to know what it is I need to do right. And that's where having a coach is so important. 
because coach can see you. If you don't, you can't see yourself all that well. Even with an underwater camera, you can see it. But most athletes, most swimmers, most triathletes anyway, are not sharp enough to be able to define what what they're exactly they're doing wrong. It's just they need to go faster is all they think. Somehow they got to go faster in the water by, you know, what just work harder is all they got to do. And that, that's not mm. the way you get there. Mm. And and if they can recognize some things that they're doing wrong in the stroke, sometimes it's the things that won't make much of a difference as well. I've often yeah. seen, because when we run clinics, we've got six people there and I'll sit down with each of them and I'll, I'll go through their stroke with them. And before I go through their stroke, we'll play through the video and I'll ask them, was there anything you could notice there? Sometimes people get like all the things and like, and they have a really good sense of it because I think they've they've studied it and they they've watched it a lot. But then some other swimmers are looking at things that I'm not even really sort of noticing, things that they could do better. But it's something that's not going to move the needle when it comes to their, their speed and their time. So it does help to have someone who who knows what they're doing. Speaking of of coaches, what's the what's the hardest set that you've ever prescribed? Hardest swim workout you've prescribed someone? <laughs> oh gosh. Oh, yeah, go way back on that probably. Uh, I coached a couple of guys who were training for the for the Olympics in Sydney, by the way. You're you're hmm. uh, I attended those, yeah. But when as a spectator, they were they're amazing. Yeah. I had a couple of athletes university. He was he was a great cyclist, mediocre runner, and so he had a couple of bats, a couple of strokes, strikes against him already. And I used to put him in the pool and try to work on things that would get him to the point that he could handle the higher intensities. Especially, I'd try to put him in the pool with somebody faster than him, and the idea that he was just swimming in the other guys on his feet because that's what he's going to have to do in the race. Because he, I was never going to get him to the point where he's going to come out of the water first. He was always going to come out of the water mid-pack. And if it wasn't for having other swimmers around him, he was going to come out of the water back of the pack. Mm. He just wasn't that good in the water. So we had to spend a lot of time just working on stamina. In this case, stamina in the slipstream of a, of a really good swimmer. And so I would find somebody who, like the other guy I coached who were, they both lived in the same town. I put them together in the pool. And after the warm-up, we'd do these long, long sets, thousands where he had to hold the guy's feet and I had the other guy try told him to go as hard as he could every time. So I knew he could do it, try to drop him. And so he would try to drop my less effective swimmer. And he, it, it had, he had to improve his stamina. He had to be improve his ability to hang on even when it doesn't feel good. You know, when you're working mm-hmm. hard and you're taking yourself to your limit, especially swimming thousands with relatively short recoveries. I don't recall what the recoveries were now. This is back in the, 1998, 99 period. But that was the sort of thing that we had to work on for him was he just had to be able to hang with the fast swimmers. Uh, and, and he did eventually improve. He got, he got better, but he never got to, to be what I would call a good swimmer. He was a better swimmer, but he was not a good swimmer. So that was the thing that he, he had to focus on the race also. He had to hold somebody's feet in the water to make sure he was going, he was keeping up with the, with the race. Mm. I love it. There's a surf Ironman swimmer that I, or competitor that I know, he sometimes trains with our group and he lives up in Queensland and occasionally they've had the, some of the British triathlon team 
training with them. And he said when he when they were there, there was this one swimmer in the group who wasn't very strong in the open water and just didn't have great skills out there. And so what the coach had this surf surf Ironman competitor to do was uh, he said, I just want you to be on top of this guy. Like for the next six weeks, I want you, whenever we're in the open water, I want you to be right next to him. Make it uncomfortable for him. When you're going around the turns, when you're exiting the water, when you're when you're starting, just be on him. And he he was he was he didn't go easy on him, and he was just all over him. And then after six weeks, after that practice, he just got more comfortable with having other people around, and really improved his his swim and and, and his open water racing. So just practicing those things, getting comfortable doing that makes such a big, big difference, especially for people who are already a bit nervous in the water and a bit uncomfortable, just training in those situations. And it's like, if you're afraid of something or you're not comfortable with it, we'll just start small, work your way up. If you're scared of the open water, go at knee depth, be two meters off the shore. Then you can start to you know, increase it from there. So there's a there's a, a strategy to, to improving in everything. And often it just means start small. Like you're talking about with the technique. It's like you don't need to, you know, just pick one thing and start at the, the first thing. Maybe it's posture and, and body position. Start there, then build your way up. It doesn't have to be, you're not jumping out of planes straight away. I agree. That was one of the hardest things to do and put on a camp. Was I, I would have these triathletes for, for one week. At the end of one week, my goal, one of the goals I had for them was always to be a better swimmer than when they, they came to the the camp and uh, that was difficult to do because you, it, well, even though I was only teaching four things to them the challenge was they only had actually six days to absorb these things before they went back home again and so then I always gave them a pep talk at the end of the week you know you've been through all these things you now know what these four things are and that's all I want you to work on don't work on anything else when you get to the pool if you have a coach on deck and the coach says, I don't want you to have your hand above the water. I want you to have your fingers in the water next to your head. But they often teach this sort of thing. So teach one, if the coach says that to you and tells you to change your, your technique, say, yes, ma'am, I'll do that. And then go right back to what, doing what I told you. Do not do that. It's going to make you a worse swimmer. The idea was I want to drill into their heads that this was important, that they're going to get. They're going to get lots of feedback from people who people who they respect. Probably, we're going to tell them not to do this, but I guarantee them if they did it, they would get better. But so they, you know, if I had them for six months, I could make them all really good swimmers. But if I've got them for one week, there's no chance. All I can do is just teach them something that they can do on their own. Then they can go back home, and for the next six months, they can work on that thing and become better swimmers if they're mm. patient enough. That which is the next big issue, as we've already talked about. Mm. Um, if you think back to well, basically since since triathlon began, if you could see a head-to-head race from anyone current or, or past, who would those two athletes be if it, they were to race at the Kona Ironman World Championships? Anyone from past or, or present? Well, that's, that's already taken place. Mark Allen, Dave Scott in 1989. I was there for this. Uh, as a, I knew that was going to be in it. I can fall. And that's in the heat of it's it's like ninety degrees and ninety percent humidity, ninety degrees Fahrenheit and, and ninety humidity, ninety percent. And I recall these guys coming out of transition two on the run, shoulder to shoulder. 
And I can recall I was standing there in the heat and sweat was just pouring out of me just watching. And they were running at the time, probably at that point, running about 6 to 6.30 pace per mile. I would translate that into kilometers, but a fast pace for, for an Ironman. They were pushing themselves pretty good. And I, they were only like in the second mile when I saw them of the run. And, I, and then I watched them throughout the race. I kept driving at the various points on the course to, to get down and be able to watch what they were doing. In those days, you could actually get closer to the race than you can now. And so I watched them all the way until they finally came to the, to the last mile when finally Mark Allen dropped Dave Scott. They'd been shoulder to shoulder for, you know, 25 miles, 40 kilometers. And here they are now. They're finally getting some gap between them. And that to the, to my, to me, that was the best race I'd ever been to in triathlon. It wasn't the fastest times ever, but compared with today, they're running faster times today. But the best race was those two guys. And then the book came out several years later called Iron War. And I read the book. It's, a, it's an excellent book. And it really tells that story extremely well of what these guys were going through in preparation for the race and on race day and so forth. And it, it's just a great story. In fact, that was 1989. And the other best race that ever occurred in endurance sports also happened in 1989 although it was a Tour de France. And that was the race that came down to eight seconds between first and second. Greg LeMond and beat Laurent Fignon. And so I got to see the two best races I've ever, that I've ever seen, never heard of. I got to see them both firsthand. It was just an amazing experience to be there for those, for those races. No wonder, you're, no wonder you got hooked on triathlon and endurance racing. Yeah, when you see that sort of stuff <laughs> back then, that's, that's awesome. It is. So, to to wrap up, Joe. So outside of triathlon, what is what's something that you really enjoy doing? A hobby or or something that you take a lot of time thinking about or or, or doing outside of triathlon? Yeah, most people don't know this, but I've been playing golf since about nineteen ninety seven or ninety eight, something like that. And I've never gotten very good at it. But there's something about golf that that kind of is, is makes you come back to it every day. You want to get, but you think you can get better at it. And yet somehow you're just as miserable day as you were the day before. And so I, I've used this as a learning experience for myself. So back in, even when I first started 19, or it was late nineties, I hired a, a, a teacher to work with me at my golf club to work on my technique. And over the years, I've changed teachers. I've had, I don't know, eight, nine, 10 teachers over the years. And one thing I learned is two things, what not to do and try to teach a skill like golf or like swimming, what not to do, which is overwhelm the person that's just too much information, too much data, too much stuff, fill mm. their head with too many things they got to do. And then all of a sudden they got to do it. Like in golf, you, you know, your swing lasts about a second and a half. And yet the instructors told you five things you got to do in a second and a half, but you're, you're standing there trying to get all the stuff into your head. You know, get it all right. And then you start your swing and immediately all those five things are gone and you just hit the ball again. You know, that was, I had one instructor like that. The other instructors have had all been much more deleterious about making sure we get the right thing worked on, just as I do with, with swimmers. Mm. So they take one thing, which you see is the most basic thing, and they would have me work on that thing over and over and over and over until I get it right. Then we move on to the second thing. That's that's the good instructors. That's and that's good coaches also. Good coaches don't move on to the more advanced things until they get the most basic things taken care of. So the athlete really can make those moves correctly 
Then we move on to more advanced things. It's not just movement and skills. This also has to do with types of workouts you do, five times three minutes, for example, as opposed to doing five times 30 seconds when you first start, that sort of thing. We start with the most basic thing. We work our way up over time, and you become a better athlete. As you mentioned before, before you've got to be patient to do that, and so many athletes are not patient. And unfortunately, there are coaches and golf instructors out there who are not patient either. They want the athlete to learn something immediately and know exactly what they're supposed to be doing. So that's yeah. that's when I even though whenever I take up another activity, even ping pong, wherever it may be, somehow this always comes back to my head. How can I how can I get better at this? And how can I take what I learned here back to my coaching <laughs> with triathletes, whatever it may be? There's always this crossover going on in my head that's always kind of like been my way of my engineering way of seeing working with athletes. We can engineers see it as fixing the problem. That's the same thing I see. I always see it as fixing the problem. What is the problem? You find the problem, fix the problem. Mm. That's what I've always, I've always seen this. And that's how I've come up with my coaching methodology over the, all the years is what's the problem? How do we fix it? Okay, mm. let's do that. You know, but you got to think that way. If you don't think that way, you just start doing things randomly and nothing happens. If there's any good at all, like the guy, the golf instructor has you working on, you know, five things on one swing. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. I've I've found a very similar thing with with surfing, which is probably the thing I do most outside of swimming. And all the coaches and the videos and stuff that I've seen, there's only been one coach that's really resonated with me. And I was thinking about well, why is it? Why do I really get the concept when this guy talks about surfing? And well, number one, he uses really good cues and analogies, and so I've, I've tried to integrate those more and more into the into my coaching because it helps me relate that some of the things. Like an example there is like when you get up on the the surfboard, do you want to be like a sprinter starting a race, like you're sort of in like this position, sort of half crouch, knees slightly bent, and so I was like, that's easy to picture. So when you get up, you know, get into that position. Then another one he uses is this coffee cup analogy. So your your hand at the back is he says imagine you've got a cup of coffee and you don't want to spill that cup of coffee so you're sort of holding that hand up and this is what provide it gives you the the balance so when you're when you're turning when you're sort of coming back like don't spill that cup of coffee so and and again just really simple cue that within the three seconds or the four seconds you might be riding a wave it's like well all right coffee cup done i can do that so i I'm, I think I'm similar. I'd love to relate things back to how can I be a better coach? How can I get my swimming concepts across to, to the people that I'm coaching? You just can't turn off that brain. It's, you just can't turn it off. It's, it's going to be like that for, yeah, for, the, for the rest of your life, I think. It's, but that's, a, right. that's all part of the fun, right? You bet. I enjoyed doing it. It's, it is fun. Joel, thanks so much for being on the podcast again. I've really enjoyed this and I can't wait to share this with our, with our listeners. So for those that are listening, you've just released the fifth edition of the triathletes training bible we'll link to that in the show notes anything you'd like to say to to finish up here i want to thank you very much first of all just for having me on board and i always enjoy talking with people about sport i don't care what the sport is if i know anything at all about it which is i'm pretty limited golf is not my strength when it comes to talking but triathlon is more than that in that area and and i enjoy talking about that so thanks for having me on I, i had a good time thank you very much thanks joe Thanks for listening to the Effortless Swimming Podcast. If you'd like us to help you become a faster, more efficient swimmer, go to www.effortlessswimming.com.